I am excited to wrap up our series that we've called Practical Wisdom for Today. And um, I thought the best way for us to do that, it's been a study of James all through the month, uh, month of June, month of July, and now all the way to this point in August. It's been a great study. I've enjoyed it. I've been challenged by the things that we've learned in James. I thought it'd be kind of fun to just take a second, walk through some of the highlights that we've seen in James that I'm sure we've all applied and and everything's working perfectly now in our lives. All these simple little things we've learned in the book of James, right? First thing we heard was consider it joy and persevere through trials so that you can become mature and complete believers in Christ. That's still a struggle for me to consider it joy when I face trials. That's a struggle. Second thing, I got to preach this, and I still think it was some um, directed plan at me. I got the passage that said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And funny part about that, I preached it, just a little side note, I, I preached it that night. We had an event at church. I had to go back to my office. And I was trying to print something. My son, Luke, my oldest son, was with me. And he had sat in on the message that morning. And I'm trying to print something. And the printer was doing what printers do. And it was not cooperating like the, you know, gave you the old PC load letter thing or whatever that that it says it's an error. And I've tried three times. And on the third time, I'm like, oh, you stupid printer. And my son, who's sitting there, said, "Ah, ah, ah, daddy slow to anger. Yeah. So I preached to you that morning. He preached to me that evening. I still have work to do on the whole slow to anger, slow to speak thing. We've learned to be doers of the word, to not show favoritism, that faith without action is dead. All throughout the book of James, we've heard encouragement to tame our tongue. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Chapter 4, verse 10. If you know the good that you should do, do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then last week, Daniel gave a great message. We talked about prayer and we talked about praying for one another. And he had this quote. I thought it was really, really powerful. We are designed to live out our faith in community. I can't fully understand what it means to follow Christ unless I'm in community. The true root of healing is a restored relationship with God and others. That's a great quote. And he taught us we should pray for each other. And at the end of the service, we had the opportunity to do that last week. And I hope that you have throughout this week been praying for someone. I hope you've engaged in praying for each other. And this emphasis on prayer and community that, uh, that James has been talking about, it brings him to the close of his letter. And we've been encouraged to acknowledge our faults to one another, to pray for one another. And now finally, James is going to encourage us to do all that we can in the place that God has put us to turn folks back to God. And that's kind of where we are today. I want us to look at our passage to verses with a lot of meat in them today. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James 5, 19 and 20. And here's what it says. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. 
Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Last two verses in the book of James, and context is really important for us here this morning as we begin this look at this passage. Remember last week, verse 13 through 18, it's really about caring for each other through ministry and through prayer, and that is the same context in which these two verses close up the entire book. So with that context in mind, I think there's three things that we can learn. It always has to be three, right? It's got... It would be weird if it was five or eight or something like that. Today, it's going to be three. And uh, I want us to dive right in. The first thing that we were going to learn is that people will stray from the truth. People will stray from the truth. And so I'm going to make a statement here, and you're going to probably go, yeah, we get it. But if you can stray from the truth, that can only mean that truth is available. Truth is available. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we hold to his teachings. John 8, 31 and 32 says, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's a familiar passage. We've heard that before. James has written about our, our good and personal God who is absolute who's absolutely true. He's building on passages like that one in John 8 and then also in John 14 where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through God's word, we can know absolute truth. This book right here, the gospel, if you're a follower of Jesus... You know this already. This is the standard of truth. What's in this book? It's God's word. We believe that here at the fellowship. This is the standard of truth. Not something we come up with. That fact puts the church at large at odds with our society because our society has been swallowed up in something called relativism. Relativism, by definition, is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture or society or historical context and are not absolute. That's what relativism is. And that's not a surprise to you if you pay attention to the news at all. You understand that. It's become very much, you know what, whatever I feel, that's truth. And then whatever you feel, that's truth too. And then whatever you feel, that's truth as well. And all of these different truths can coexist. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. There is a standard of absolute truth. Surveys in America say that two-thirds of adults believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And if you take that number to just the demographic of 18 years old to 25 years old... It jumps all the way to 74% believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. That means it's pretty important for us as a church to be crystal clear about the fact that absolute truth is not only available, but it's knowable. It is knowable through God's word, through the person of Jesus Christ. 
God's will for our lives is that we would live in holiness, and, and that holiness is found in these scriptures. So truth is available, and it is possible that we will stray from the truth. It's possible for us to do that. One way to tell is to take a look at your life, read the scriptures, and see if those two things line up. If your life looks different than what the scripture says, then guess what? We've begun to stray from the truth. And here's the thing, that can happen both in opinion and practice. We can stray from the truth. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Errors in our judgment and in life generally go together. I think that's really powerful. In order for our life to begin to stray, it begins to, to happen in the mind first. We, our judgment is off. We miss what Scripture has for us. So it, let me be clear. It's possible for even, even for those that are in relationship with Jesus to stray from the truth and to head down a wrong path. Okay? So the first thing we learn, people will stray from the truth. Second thing, this was going to sound even more obvious, all right? Sin threatens us. Is that a surprise? Sin threatens us. Maybe we don't live that way. We might know it in our head. Maybe we don't live that way. James wants us to know that sin is a life-threatening danger, not just some insignificant blemish on our otherwise good character. He tells us there in verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save him from death. If you remember, in fact, if you want to, flip back to James 1. He's talked about this a little bit before already. Verse 14 and 15 of James 1 says, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Full-grown sin ultimately destroys the sinner. It threatens us with death, both physically and spiritually. And that is hard for us to hear because we kind of we rank our sin, don't we? At least I do. I don't know if you do, but I, I rank them. Sin is sin. The same surveys that we mentioned earlier say that 83% of people in America, of adults in America believe that people are basically good. So when you start talking about the fact that we're all sinners, that can be a little uncomfortable when put up against our culture today. But if we will believe that there is danger present in sin, then we're going to begin to share James' passion for righteousness. And that's what it's all about. We, sin threatens us. So people will stray from the truth. And sin threatens us. We're going to jump to the third thing. We're going to camp out here just a little bit. Third thing we learned, we are called to point others back to God. And that's kind of the crux of this whole passage here. As Christ followers, we have the responsibility to notice sin. First and foremost in our own lives and then also in the lives of others. We have to notice sin. And we've got to be willing to call it sin. Great example from this weekend, what happened in Charlottesville. 
That is sin. Racism is sin. We have to recognize it and call it out. Now, it's fine for us to think about looking at sin in our own lives, right? Like, yeah, I can handle that. I can look at my own lives. But when I say we have the responsibility to notice it in others, hmm, everybody starts to get a little uncomfortable there, right? We have to recognize sin for what it is and realize that, that if we don't, like if we start to stray off that path, then we can, we can stray both in our opinion and our practice. I said that a second ago. I'll just give you a crazy example, okay? Let's say that I decide that, you know what? Murder is okay for Bill over here to do. That's fine for Bill to commit murder. I personally am not going to commit murder because that's how I want to live. But it's okay if Bill wants to commit murder. Do you see how I've strayed from the path of truth in my opinion? Not in my practice, but in my opinion. I've just thought it. So you got to be careful what you think about sin. I know that's a crazy example. I know everybody understands that. But, but how often do we do that with the sin in our lives? Do we recognize sin for what it is, that it can kill us? Do we see it in our lives? And then do we have close enough relationships with others that we see it in theirs? It requires prayerful action if we're going to endeavor to enter into relationships in which we call each other into account. Because it's hard. And motive is really important. If I'm, if I'm Captain Righteous and I'm sitting up here and I'm like, all right, oh, Andy, sinner, you need to stop. Try to be a little bit more like me. If that's what I do, my motive's wrong. That's not what James is talking about here. Not at all. So motive is really important and it's not an easy task. But here's the thing, we've got to be willing to love others enough to step into their lives with a loving and redemptive motive and point them back to God, back to righteousness, back to holiness. Now, just to make it a little bit more real for you, I want to share an example that happened in my own life because this is a tough passage. I want to be honest with you. It, it, it's hard when we talk about calling each other into account and recognizing sin and being willing to deal with it and all of that. But here's the best way I know to explain it to you. I loved my college experience. Really did. Went to Dallas Baptist University. Originally went there to play baseball. Um, figured out pretty quick that wasn't going to be my thing. And so I kind of transitioned out of that. Really got into um, leadership roles in the Baptist student ministry there. Got to form the first band and lead worship, um, doing Lord, I Lift Your Name on High a whole lot back then. Um, had to be in the set list. That's what it had to be. But enjoyed it, loved, loved the friends that I made, loved the ministry I got to, to be a part of, um, loved the crazy things that you, that you do in college. We were to a ba- went to a Baptist school, so how many of you students, do you, do you love curfew? No hands, notice that. There are no hands. Well, I want you to know, just to encourage you a little bit, if you choose to go to a, like a private school, Baptist school, something like that, curfew can still exist when you're in college, okay? Because that's, that's what happened to me. We had a 12 o'clock curfew, 
and we were always trying to figure out ways to get back into our locked dorm if we were late, right? So there's some fun involved in that um, in college. I was never late. I'm sure you know that already. But um, <clears throat> loved my college experience. In fact, I loved most everything about college except for the classes, <laughs> right? It's where a lot of us were. I was a business management major, and there were some classes that came easier than others. The economics uh, classes that I had to take, got them. Very, very clicked in my head. I slept on the back row very often and still aced the test. That's just kind of how it worked. Made my professor angry that I was sleeping on the back row and acing his test, but that's kind of how it worked. I just read the stuff, got it, was able to take a test. Not so much so for the business math classes that we had to take. The upper level calculus and the upper level accounting and statistics and all that stuff, none of which I've used, by the way. I would just like to say that. <clears throat> I have a calculator. Why do I need the class, right? Um, but one particular class was difficult for me. And I had always been an A-B student. Um, had, I graduated in high school, top 10% of my class. And, and I, so I struggled with even the thought of getting a C. And I was going to get one in this class that I was taking. But taking a test one day, I have mediocre feelings about most of the tests. Get to the last question on the test. I have no idea. No idea what I'm going to do. And I notice, to my right, there's a, there's a paper sitting there, another test of my neighbor. And for the first time in my life, as I'm going to be honest with you, I just wasn't. I was a cheater, but for the first time in my life, I was tempted with cheating. And, of course, holiness overtook me and righteousness, and I said, no, I will not cheat, right? I wish I could tell you that were true, but it's not. I took the opportunity, saw long written out answers, copied them, put it down, hoped she was right. Turned it in, walked out to the hallway was met by a friend, my friend Laura. And we walked out of the building and, you know, just acted like everything was fine. It was good until just a little bit later, Laura came to me and said, hey, I need, I need to ask you about something. And I just want to say up front that I'm not trying to make you mad and I'm not trying to judge you, which, you know, when someone says that to you, you're kind of like, whoa, hold up. Where are we going here? What's going on? And Laura looked at me and she said, look, you may not know this, but I was in the hallway while you were taking the test in, in your terrible math class, whatever it was. And I happened to be looking in there, and I noticed you several times. It kind of looked like you were looking on your neighbor's paper, and it kind of looked like you were writing the answer down. And I'd just like to know, did I see that wrong? I mean, she nailed it in how you approached this, right? Because now I'm left with, okay... Do I lie or do I tell the truth? Well, I want you to know that thankfully in that moment, I looked at Laura and I said, look, I cheated. I did. You saw it. You saw it right. And she said, and I'll never forget this. She said, well, I, I just wanted to bring that to your attention because I've seen you in the Baptist student ministry and I've seen you lead worship and, and I've heard you talk about your relationship with God and 
when I saw that and I thought it was cheating, it sure looked to me like that's not who you say that you are. That's not the character that you say you want to have. And so I just want you to think about that because I'm your friend and, and I want the best for you and I feel like your ministry and your life would be compromised if you're saying one thing and living another. Woo! You know what? She was willing to risk and to step into it with me, not knowing how I'd respond. And because she did, I was able to confess before God what I'd done. I confessed to Laura. I went to my professor and I said, look, you're going to think this is crazy. But I cheated on the last question of that test. I copied my answer from my friend and God's convicted of me of that. And I submit to whatever punishment that I have to take for that. And thankfully, my professor was gracious and, and I had to deal with some consequences, but we, we still graduated. And that's, that's always a good thing. But you know what? That moment of repentance never happens if Laura doesn't take the risk and the care and the love for our friendship enough to where she said, hey, Aaron, I need you to think about this. Is, it, is that who you want to be? That is what James is talking about. Laura noticed that I was on the wrong path. And when we see people in our lives that are on the wrong path, we need to keep in mind that there's several realities that are going on with them. Maybe they're blinded to the truth. Maybe they don't know the truth of God's word. Maybe they're being led by emotions. Maybe there's a perceived need that they have that has made them choose the wrong path. My perceived need was to get a passing grade on that test. Now, when looking back on it, that was really dumb. What a stupid way to risk my character and my life for a grade on a test, right? Really dumb. That was a perceived need, and it was not a real need. I needed to study more. That's what I needed to do. And eventually, those that are bound by sin or on the wrong path, they're going to be burned by it. And it's going to burn those that are around them as well. Truth is, is that when we engage in sin and if we don't get called on it, we get blinded to it, becomes habit, then we can get bound to the wrong path. We can get bound to it. That old saying that I've heard since I was a kid, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Right? I've sung many songs that have that line in it. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. That's true. You know what? In my example, Laura recognized that sin was a problem. And, that, and I told her, because you know, I was trying to justify it. You know, this is the first time I've ever cheated. She still recognized that it was a problem, that it could lead to death. Because what did James tell us? Sin full grown gives way to death, right? So what if Laura never says anything to me? And I get a decent grade on that test. My mind says, well, I worked that time. I'm a stealthy cheater, obviously, you know. I should keep, maybe I can do that again in that math class. And again. And then it gets a little bigger, and I'm okay with it because it worked the first time. I'm blinded to the truth. 
sin is becoming full grown and it can lead to death. Now, would that have led to my physical death? I doubt that. But it sure could have led to my academic death. I'm sure you're aware most colleges are not real thrilled with people that cheat in their studies, right? So Laura stepped in. This is a principle that we see all throughout Scripture. I just want to read you three verses just to just to show you kind of the context that James is using to back this up here. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And if we do that, that's true ministry. And it's ministry that will cut through the relativistic culture that we live in today. And here's the thing. We're called to it, all of us, not just pastors, not just elders. All of us are called to enter into that level of relationship with people. So let's get practical. That is why we have life groups here at the fellowship. Because I just want to be honest with you. If you just come and you're here on a Sunday morning for an hour, hour and 10 minutes, whatever it is, that's not enough to go deep into relationship with others. That's why we have the life groups. That's an opportunity for you to go deeper, to live life. We say that a lot. It's also why we have men's and women's discipleship groups. There's accountability there. In this room, there's, there's at least one guy who's part of my discipleship group that we meet with on a daily basis, or not a daily basis, a weekly basis. And guess what? I know that those guys, if they see something in my life that doesn't match up, guess what they're going to do? They're going to come say, hey, Aaron, I want you to think about this. Now, is that comfortable? No, it's not. Not comfortable at all. But it's needed. It's really, really needed for all of us. We want everyone at the fellowship to have at least one relationship that is so deep and so trustworthy that you can help each other by being accountable, by studying scripture, by praying together and serving together, that you can confront each other and guide each other back to Christ. That's what it's all about, and that's what James is saying to us. The Asbury Commentary says this, the bonds of fellowship at our church should be so sensitive that a brother or sister cannot wander from the gospel without someone seeking him and restoring him to a vital relationship. So if we take the initiative, if we pray for a person, if we act in love and we can meet them where they are, wherever they are on that path, then maybe we can point them back to God and to forgiveness, which is what we're called to do. It is never about judging. 
but it's always about lovingly correcting and challenging. As you, you may know, you may not know, I don't preach often. I'm usually um, on the musical side of things. And so when I do have the opportunity to preach, I go to what I think are my best resources. My parents, when looking at a passage, I always love to hear what they have to say about a passage because it helps me kind of frame it out. They're great godly people. But my dad had a quote that I love, and I think it's a, a great way for us to kind of start to wrap up what we're thinking about here. Here's what he said. It is indefensible to say that we love and have faith if we won't invest into the needs of our fellow believers. It's not can't invest, it's won't invest. So if we truly love God, if we truly love each other, then we are called to invest in each other's lives. And James is telling us that sometimes that means we need to help point somebody back to the right path when they have strayed from the truth. 